The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. ourselves in the world. This image might be a source of confidence and pride, but it can be a prison or a death sentence. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and dogleg, and this evening's film is The Swimmer, the 1968 drama starring Bert Lancaster and based on the short story by John Cheever. My guest is Chris Arnsby, and you join us in his drawing room in seasonal weather. Hello, Chris. Hello. What can you tell me about... Well, I don't know where to start, really. The tagline of the swimmer was, when you talk about the swimmer, will you talk about yourself? Yes, I, I saw that on the poster when um, when I was renting this one to watch, and I'm not sure what that means, really. I suppose the argument is that when you go back, what, what, the, what the marketing people are hoping is that when you go home and talk about the film, it's... You'll talk about how it made you feel, or... I don't think that's necessarily the case. Well, certainly I don't think that's necessarily what they were Mm. intending. Could you describe, in straightforward terms, the loose plot of The Swimmer? Yes. um, I take it all the way through to the ending. Okay. Or just generally, because just generally it is... And I, I saw the plot outline, which is basically that, that one afternoon a man decide, works out by looking at his neighbour's paws that he can swim home. And I thought, that sounds stupid. Um, and uh, you, it's that kind of thing, thinking, what kind of film has that as a plot? <laughs> well, it's based on a short story mm. by John Cheever, one of the great chroniclers of um, upper-class suburban ennui. Uh, and the short story, I I try to read um, oh, yeah. the source materials whenever um, uh, I cover anything that's based on something else. I did, unfortunately, this to make an oversight with uh, Lonely of the Brave. It's based, that was based on a novel called The Brave Cowboy, and I couldn't get hold of a copy easily enough, but apparently it's yeah. very similar to the original book. Um, I read uh, the short story the other day. I was pretty much able to do it during a coffee break because it's 12 pages long. Okay, that's a pretty short, short story. And yet, this is a pretty close adaptation of that. It adds a lot of material, Mm. um, but the tone and overall content are the same. Mm. It's in the same spirit, yeah. Absolutely, yes. I can imagine that... I've I've no idea what Shiva's reaction was, but I can imagine he would have been quite pleased by Mm. how it turned out. Um, what do you make of Burt Lancaster in general? 
a hat or a plane or a pretty little bird. So, yes. um, no, most, most amusing. Yes. Uh, sorry, this isn't the place for laughter and enjoyment. This isn't the place for fun. <laughs> um, the I don't think I've seen another Burt Lancaster film. Oh my god! To the extent that I may accidentally refer to him as Burt Reynolds in the course of this, for which I apologise in advance. He... I, I'm really impressed by every time <laughs> we, we cover a movie, you and I specifically, um, it's always someone you've never seen before, someone you've never heard of, and they're always people who are actually really famous. I uh, know. You've I w- never seen another Kirk Douglas? Have you never seen Spartacus? Uh, no, I, it turned out I have seen Spartacus. That's what I was thinking, yeah. Have you seen uh, The Crimson Pirate with Burt Lancaster? No. Nope. Or his Oscar-winning role in Elmer Gantry? Is he the one that's in From Here to Eternity? Yes. yes yeah, I haven't seen that either, but Great. I'm aware of well, its existence. That's really helpful. Have you seen the film Tough Guys, which stars Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster <laughs> as ex-cons trying to make their way in the modern world? No. Which might have been good to talk about with Lonely of the Brave, because yes. it's like a comedy version of Lonely of the Brave, except with gangsters instead of cowboys. And with a, a happier ending, I hope. Um, well, they make it to Mexico. Oh, well, there you go. That's fine. Uh, yeah. And then... Um, Kirk Douglas kicks the head of the Mexican police in the groin and the film ends with a freeze frame and it's really unsatisfying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, I wouldn't... Also, it's also a Brian De Palma film and it's a really weird Brian De Palma film even by his standards. But, I... but Lancaster uh, by the mid-60s was a big star. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. He's uh, the manly man. You know, he could outmanly carry Grant. He could wrestle bears. Oh yeah, he yeah. He was a... Oh, The Sweet Smell of Success. The Michael J. Fox one? No, that's The Secret of My Success. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, Local Hero. Shall I just leave now? <laughs> it's your house. <laughs> um, well, to begin with, what fucking Local Hero? Okay. Um, the Sweet Smell of Success was sort of the film that proved that he was more than just a, you know, the, the daredevil action star. It's a film in which he plays a cold, cruel New York gossip columnist oh, okay. who takes real quiet, sadistic pleasure in destroying the lives of those about whom he writes. When was this film? Late 50s. So about the time that, what's the name, Luella Ponsby or whatever. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, Luella Ponsonby is James Bond's secretary in some of the later Bond novels. You're oh. thinking of Luella Parsons. Parsons, that was it. It was a, I was a 50-50 chance with the surname. And it also stars uh, Tony Curtis, and it's, it's another film. Oh yeah, Tony Curtis is a really good actor. Hmm. Um, but having won an Oscar for Elmer Gatry, where he plays a um, small-town preacher, uh, Lancaster, I think, was starting to look at his career and think, I'm getting on in years a little. I'm in my mid-40s now. I should probably do some more kind of character type movies because, you know, things aren't going to last forever the way they are. The Crimson mm. Pirate's all well and good, but, you know, the the athlete's physique will only last as long as, yeah, as time allows. So he, I believe, I think this is correct, um, he was recruited by a producer specifically for this film. Oh, Okay on the grounds that they needed a big star to get the movie off the ground. Because it's such a strange... It's odd. ...film that they needed... It's like like Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson. That film would not have been made if it did not have <laughs> yeah. an A-list starring the lead role. This film would not have been made without mm. a big Burt Lancaster, you know, manliest man in the streets type character yeah. in the lead role. It was made in 1966... 
and it sat on a oh. shelf for two years. Because I was going to say, because no one knew what to do with it. Because the release date is '68, so yeah. I was a bit surprised when you said it was made in '66. Okay. By '68, I think the landscape was changing sufficiently so that Columbia, the studio behind it, thought there's probably a market for this, mm. and even if there isn't, well, it's not an expensive film. Will probably break even. And as a result, I think it just about broke even and kind of became a weird cult film and mm. is still today not well known. Yeah. It starts with the, the Columbia logo comes up and there's a really menacing scare chord. Oh, yeah, it starts like a horror film, doesn't yeah. it? Because, oh, it starts like a, a, a sort of. Uh, like a Hitchcock uh, or, or Halloween or something because it's, it's heavy breathing over footage of. Some unseen character stalking through bushes, and then there's random shots of wildlife. Yes, like something out of the Thin Red Line, and this beautiful lush music score, mm. which recurs throughout the film, and it's it's incongruous how yeah. lush it is, and this this ongoing theme. The music's by Marvin Hamlish. That's a name I recognise, but I couldn't necessarily tell you why. He's one of only two pigots there's ever been. What is a peacock? I, I was going to say, I, I could you, you elaborate a little bit more? He, in his lifetime, he won a Pulitzer, an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. Wow. And only two people have ever done that. Who? The other one is Richard Rogers of Rogers and Hammerstein. Oh, okay, that makes, yeah, makes sense. And I, I looked into this. There are about five or six people who've won four of them. Only two Pulitzer winners are one short. And of those, one has been nominated. Yeah. And that's Lin-Manuel Miranda. Okay. Nominated for an Oscar, didn't win. And this was, yes, this was Hamish's first film. He'd started out as uh, Barbara Streisand's session pianist, got a job playing uh, piano at Hollywood parties, and on the strength of that, wangled his way into this. And within ten years, he'd be one of the most powerful musician hmm. composers in Hollywood. This film really wrong-footed me. Um, I think I'd, ne- for, I'd either vaguely heard about it or I'd obviously seen the concept of, of this thing about a man decides to swim home through the pool. And it's the fact that it keeps talking about he swims home through the pools of his friends and neighbours or something. And I... Bear with me, because this is going to sound a bit nuts. For some reason, you kind of go, okay, well, this film, it's 1968, so that's the swinging 60s, so everybody's going to be, it's going to be a bit sexy and it's going to be a bit fun, and maybe it's going to be like, is it what that Warren Beatty film, Shampoo? Oh, yeah. Where he pr- plays the character of a hairdresser who pretends to be gay so he can sleep with loads of women. Yes. And that's, look, Burt Lancaster, swinging 60s, he's going to kind of swim his way through people's back gardens, it's going to be easygoing and sexy and funny and... Not, not no, it couldn't be less like that. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was. Uh, no, I can, I can, I can see where you might get that from. The idea being that it's a kind of a a, a fun countercultural thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's bringing the swinging sixties to suburbia. Yes, but no, it's the exact opposite. It's a sad, grim, depressing story of a man whose life is disintegrating, and he won't even acknowledge that there's anything wrong. Yeah. For the film. No wonder yeah. it sat on the shelf for two years. They just didn't know what to do yeah. with it. Well, we have this opening titles of these scenes of nature, the woods, animals, trees, lush music. Heavy breathing. Heavy breathing. 
And then in this final shot, the camera is sort of panning through this landscape, and suddenly this figure comes from underneath, mm. running out of the forest, running into someone's back garden, onto the diving board to jump straight into the pool. Yeah. And this is Ned Merrill. He spends the entire film in a pair of swimming trunks, and he's, a, as I say, he's a great big manly man. He's Yeah, he's in good condition. He's, and but Bert Lancaster was nearly 50 when he made this, and I'm... I, looking good. I, yeah. <laughs> he's in much better shape than I have ever been. <laughs> and the, the backyard is that of his friends, the Westerhazies. Mm. It's Sunday late morning, perhaps. They've had a party the previous Fancy, night, and yes. they're, they're a bit hungover, but they're sort of they're doing okay. Yeah, and uh, their friend Neddy's dropped round, unexpected, like yeah. And they're all pleased to see him, and it's all oh, why haven't you been around for a while, or we haven't seen you where, for ages? Yeah, where, yeah, have, where you have you been? been? What have you been up to? And he just wants to talk about swimming. Yeah, and he's obsessed with swimming. Yes. To the point of getting a... He's got this weird kind of messianic look in his eye when he talks about swimming. And because I haven't seen any other Burt Lancaster films, it's, I just kind of sit there going, is Burt Lancaster always like this? Or, you know... He does have that overpowering, good cheer personality. And that's why he's so perfectly chosen hmm. for this. You need someone with that seemingly implacable self-confidence. Yeah. The man who has had everything handed to him on a plate. He's very flirtatious. He's yeah, very, yeah. He's all very sort of hail fellow well met with Mr. Westerhazy. But he also uh, kisses Mrs. Westerhazy's feet. Oh, yeah. He's... Flirts with her a great deal. And the husband is fine with this. I mean, he seemingly is either comfortable knowing nothing will happen or he... It's sort of too overpowered to... And this all plays into... As I say, this, this all played into my, my assumption that this was going to be swinging... The swinging 60s come to Connecticut suburbia or something. Mm. Because that's kind of how it's, it's playing out on screen. And, and there's a few more people there and everyone's delighted to see him. Um, and then they start talking about other people that have got swimming pools. The... Um... Who is it? Oh, it's the, the, the next people down the road, the Grahams. Is it the Grahams? They've right. had a pool put in. And um, Ned's, Ned, lo- as you say, Ned loves to swim. He's absolutely obsessed with swimming. He tries to get Mrs. Wester hazy into the pool, but you know, she's mm. still got a head full of cotton wool and she's having none of it. And um, he real- Ned realises that there's pretty much a continuous stream of backyards and pools all the way back to his house, right the way across the county. Mm. Yes, five miles away or something, isn't it? And if he takes a bit of a, a dogleg route, he could swim all the way home. So he refers to this as the Lucinda River, named yeah. after his wife. Oh, he's, he's married to Lucinda, and they have two daughters. Yeah. Ellie and Aggie, I think it was? That sounds about I think they're right, mentioned, yeah. they're, only, they're only mentioned by name yeah. once. And, and, and they're at home playing tennis. Yeah, and that, that's the point when I'm just sitting there going... You're going to hang a 90-minute film on this plot? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a 12-page short story. What more do you want? Well, that's... Yeah. And so off he goes. And oh, off he goes. He just... He, 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 well, he has that moment where he's, he's thinking and it's, there's a close-up on his face. Oh, it's... And there's sort of the reflections of water from the pool mm. reflected on his face. And it's intercut with sort of the sun and... It's... There's some very odd directing and editing choices in this film at times. And... 
in retrospect, they, they make a little bit more sense. But yeah, I, I remember watching it and looking at that sequence and going, what's going on here? Because obviously Burt Lancaster has... Yeah, Burt Lancaster. Yes, right, carry right. on. <laughs> no, it's okay. I was just checking. Just I was just doing a routine Lancaster Reynolds check to make sure <laughs> I hadn't got confused. Has got very, very blue eyes, so obviously looks very good in close-up and stuff. Yeah. But then, yes, it kind of mixes to an overload shot of water when he's rhapsodising about diving into water and the clear blue bloody blood. God, look at that water. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. And he's got this messianic looks and this crazed glint. And it's just going... Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and from the start, we see that he's he's kind of the centre of the, mm. the social circle. Yeah. Everyone knows him. Everyone's pleased to see him. They haven't seen him in quite a while, but um, even so, they're you know they're happy he's here. Oh, have a chat. Have a have a drink, Ned. I mean, mm. he's, he's, oh, in the, yeah, he's yeah. in the pool. And the first thing that happens to him is someone oh, yeah, hands him a drink. Down, that's it. He does a lamp, lamp of the pool, and then there's a shot of a hand coming into frame with a glass, isn't there? Yeah. yeah, that's it. And he also, t- he's very nostalgic for the olden days. Mm. Throughout the film, he refers to the Boy Scouts a lot, all back when I was a Boy Scout. and Oh, yes, Scouts Honour. Yes, yeah, swimming at summer camp, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, sw- oh, we'd swim the river for miles, we'd never get tired. And it all there's a point where it's just, it's starting to fetishise swimming in a way that seemed unusual, I think. <laughs> And the, the Bizwangers have had their pool redone as well. Yes, their name is very yeah. funny. Yeah, I know. And we so. will come back to that as well. Um, and that, that, that's what gives him the idea. Also, the name Shirley Abbott is mentioned cautiously mm. by one of the others, as though they're expecting some kind of reaction from Ned. I don't think I was really picking up on the kind of the relationships between various people at this point because you're kind of overwhelmed by all this talk about all these different American names and this sense of it being It's it's a lot of information to take in quite quickly. Yeah. And the way the film winds up working is a lot is left deliberately vague, mm. uh, undiscussed, oblique and frankly non-naturalistic. Yeah. Towards the end, the film does explicitly become metaphorical. Because then he suddenly swum his way into the village. (laughs) But he sets off, he does uh, one quick length of the pool, jumps out, and heads off to the Grahams down the road. Mm. And uh, Mrs. Graham, very pleased to see him, he smacks her on the bottom uh, when he uh, arrives. Yeah. Because um, that's an indication of how he treats women. Yeah. And he's he's very friendly, very charming, compliments their pool. I mean, it's not a didn't look like the world's greatest pool, to be honest, but he's rhapsodising. It was quite. It looked quite small, to be honest. It does look quite small, yeah. Um, but but he's rhapsodising, and they've got a filter. Is this the people that have got the filter that filters out 99.99% of all... It's, it's 99.99.99%. Oh, right, yes. And her husband, when he turns up on his little ride-along lawnmower, says exactly the same thing. Mm. So they're quite, clean, they're quite keen on this advertising spiel. There's, advertising, yes. I think, comes up subtly all the way through the movie. Well, a lot of this as well, a lot of this film, in the early stages particularly, reminds me of a guy that used to work for Mad Magazine called Dave Berg, I think, who used to do like, the lighter side of, and it was all these suburban dads and you know teenage kids and stuff. And the reason I laughed when you talked about Mr. and Mrs. Biswang was that, that Dave Berg's favourite character was a couple called Mr. and Mrs. Veebelfletzer, which is a sort of six-year-old or eight-year-old I found incredibly funny. It's just all these Americans with their silly names. Um, and 
there is a good, the, the, the whole early part of this film just feels like a Dave Berg cartoon come to life. There's people, as you say, people riding around on motor mowers and they're all wearing those kind of floppy sun hats. And I think particularly maybe what cements that is, I think that that's when he was, Dave Berg was drawing a lot of stuff in the late 60s. So the, the comic strips I remember would have been illustrated in the, with people dressed in the same style. And it's just, yeah, it's really... It, there's a, the, to, to me, at least, the two things really seem quite quite similar. And all this stuff about the water filters and things, and yes, people taking interest in this incredibly trivial stuff. I think they offer him a drink, don't they? And he says he should just scoop a glass of water out of the pool or something like yes. that. Yes. He also offers to tune up the mower. Oh, that's right, yes. Um, and immediately starts going to that without even asking. Mm. And... Mr. Graham is sort of a bit, well, you know, it's, it's a motor mower. It's not supposed to go that fast. Oh, oh there we go. Oh, that's much yeah. better now. Oh, brilliant. There is a certain uh, discussion of suburban intrigue of, oh, go- of gossiping and such. Yeah. And, um, well, anyway, the next thing I've written is The Man in the Grey Flannel Suit. Okay. Now, that was a book that was published in the late 50s, or the early 50s, I think. And it was about the generation that had fought in the war and come home and gone back to work and found that the ordinary lives that they were living mm. were emotionally insufficient. And the phrase, the man in the grey flannel suit, then sort of achieved a, a, a wider res- a resonance in the US because it's the idea of you know, the affluence, the comfort yeah. you have in, in your work, you have the big house, you have the good job, you've got the wife, the family, the swimming pool. You have all the material things you need for a comfortable life. But it's not enough. Yeah. There's something missing that you can't put your finger on. And it's the it's the emotional hole in your heart. Yeah. Because this is the sort of thing that wasn't talked about. Yeah. In, in generally, in, in, at least in the West. So, that I think that's kind of the, the, the backbone of the film that Cheever has sort of come up with this concept to reflect that in a very tightly focused way. Yeah, and I suppose, because there's certainly, and certainly at this stage as well, there's, these are all the people that are living the, the good American life. I, I think that it is Connecticut, isn't it? It is Connecticut, Which yes. I assume means that they all work in New York. And then yes. isn't there somebody else makes some throwaway comment about the fact they have to go back to Columbus and, oh, we should never have taken that job or something. And, yeah, something like that, yes. They obviously don't like Ohio very much. Um, and, yeah, and, and, and again, I'm still, I'm still kind of sitting there looking at it going, where are you going with this? Because... There doesn't seem to be any appreciable set. It feel, kind of feels like the setup has been made. This man's going to swim home, and he's yeah. going to just meet up with his various, talk to his various friends and neighbours as he goes home. In, in plot terms, that's it. Yeah. But the way it develops uses character and metaphor mm. to twist the story. Yeah. As the the meaning of the story develops, um, Ned also mentions that he doesn't have a pool at home. That's right. They yes. have tennis courts. Instead. Yeah, they're not. Yeah, because they. The, 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 when when Mr. Graham turns up, he's talking about the fact that it adds to the. Re- and again, it's all very com- consumerist and com- and he's talking about the fact that the pool will add money to the resale value of the house, 
and then says something about, oh, you don't have to worry about that. And and Ned says, no, I, well, I'm, not, I'm not thinking about that. I, mean, yeah. I want my girls to be married in that house. And the Grahams sort of share a look as though, yeah. what, what's and he talking about? I didn't pick up on that. Obviously, there's a, this is a film where whole exchanges of stuff become significant in retrospect. Yes. Um, and now at that point in the podcast where you think, how far do we go in before we blow? But I guess what we, what, one, of the, one of the things that's revealed later down the line is that the house is in his wife's name. Yes. So obviously, when they have the exchange about, oh, you don't need to worry about that, what they're referring to, actually, is the fact that he can't put the house up for sale because he doesn't own it. No. But yeah, as you say, there is that he does have the line about, oh, I want my daughters to get married in the house, and they kind of, they look a bit thrown. And it passed so quickly, I, I, I think it sort of registered, but I didn't read any great significance into it. I think, again... I, I think I just read it as them being a bit thrown by the fact that Ned is being, again, weird and messianic and he's got a vision. And I think they, they just assumed, well, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Having your daughter's lives mapped out like that in this much detail. Because the daughters are talked about, I think, at this point, as if they're quite young. Yes. Um, and I assumed it was just that. I just thought, oh, there goes Ned again, talking about what his daughters are going to do in 15 years' time or something. Mm. Yeah. Well, he does a quick dip and then heads yeah. off to the next house, and it's the uh, the hammers, and he just lets himself. And none of these none of these places seem to have fences or hedges no. or anything. He just walks straight in. Yeah. Um, and he takes a dip in the pool, gets out, but there is uh, an older woman there, and she is very angry. Oh, is that this one? Because I'm having trouble remembering what order the houses. Well, I have come. it here. So. Yeah, which is lucky. And I've, got um, all, and I've got all their names as well. Yes, and she's hard. not... That's right. She's um, actually the mother of Mr. Hammer, who's a good friend of Ned's. Yeah. But uh, he isn't there, because he's... Uh, something's happened. He's in hospital. It's kind of never stated. He's, he's been in hospital. Yeah. And Ned asks... And it's mentioned Ned never came to visit him. Oh, is... How is he? Is he better? And she just says, I don't want to see you here ever again. Yeah. Don't ever come back. And I think I read that as, again, oh, it's America, it's the 60s, everybody's repressed. He's got cancer and nobody wants to talk about the fact that he's horribly ill and nobody wants to deal with the fact that this is the unpleasant underbelly of American life or something like that. But in retrospect... In retrospect... I think there may be something else... There is actually something specific that um, was pointed out in an article I read about the film. Okay. Which points to exactly what happened with Mr. Hammer. It'll My be... assumption was, as you say, that that Ned thinks, oh, he's been ill, but yeah. now he's on the mend. Yeah. Or, or that Ned knew that he was ill, and Ned knew that he was badly ill, but because Mr. Hammer's illness didn't fit in with Ned's vision of how life is and how life is good and everyone's got a pole and his daughters are playing blah, 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 that he just kind of closed that section of his life off and right. now his mum and now Mr Hammer's mum is furious because she's she objects to the very callous way that his, her son was just cut off when he suddenly didn't fit into the American way it's how I read it at the time 
But I think we may have to get to the end. We may have to get to the end of this film and compare notes. <laughs> um, Why well, he has a a dreamlike run through a cave. It's a kind of overhanging. Oh yes, it's the it's an avenue of trees. Yeah. And it's it's yes because it's, it's filmed in I think slightly either fisheye lens mm. or with kind of soft focus around the edge of the frame. And, and is this another bit then when they kind of do a zoom in and they overlay? There's a couple of points in the film where they kind of it goes all sort of non-naturalistic and they kind of overlay footage. And, yes. And I think this might be another one of those bits where I'm sitting there going. Why are you doing this? <laughs> Think about how you compare your reaction to the reaction of film executives in the sixties, mm. because you've seen films that do this kind of thing. I suppose that's I true. hope so. Yeah. Um, so it's not that you're thinking, "Oh my god, I've never seen anything like this." You're thinking, "I don't know where this is going." Yeah. Think about the executives who saw it and just couldn't comprehend what they were looking at. Yeah. I- we thought this was going to be like a Kirk Douglas drama. Yeah. Kirk Douglas. <laughs> I'm doing it. Damn it. <laughs> it's infectious. I thought this was going to be a Burt. You haven't done it yet. You've got his name right every single time. I thought this was going to be a, a, a Burt Lancaster drama about uh, 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 suburbs. Yes. Yeah, but it's, it's it's about a man running around in his trunks and, and, and there's images superimposed on each other and now he's having a foot race with a horse. Mm. Because it's as though it's his way of regaining his uh, preeminent masculinity after talking to Mrs. Hammer. Oh, that's right. Yes, I'd forgotten about the, the horse. Yes, I mean, and there is that sense that he's horribly unsettled by the fact that, that, that good old lovable Ned, life and soul of the party, and hail fellow well met, yeah, and yes, and then suddenly here's somebody that doesn't like him. But and he it, and, expl- and has, appears to have a very good reason why yeah, not. Yeah. But he literally compares himself to a stallion. Yes. Which goes along with his attitude to all the women locally. Mm. Um, and at the next pool, um, I never caught the last name of the people who lived there, but they have a friend over, and that's Julianne Hooper, who used to be um, Ellen and Aggie's babysitters. Yes. Babysitter, rather. And um, yes, Ellen and Aggie are at home playing tennis. And um, he said, oh, oh, you are, are you free on, uh, during the week to come over and babysit? And he's surprised by how old she's got. Yes. And he starts talking about... And, and this is the point when I started to get a bit confused because he's still talking about his daughters as if they're young. And then there's a kind of vague shift and suddenly he's talking about his daughters as if they're the same age as the babysitter. And I just kind of shook my head and went, oh, I'm not, stop getting distracted by the weird out-of-focus images and things. You're not paying attention to this. And I just assumed I'd mis- misunderstood some I key th- detail. I think you might have misunderstood something there. I don't oh, remember okay. there being any kind of mention of that. Um, I think maybe it's just the fact that he's got surprised at how old the babysitters have got. Sorry, how yeah. old the babysitters yeah. got. And then you think, well, that means his daughters can't possibly... I think I'd just assumed his daughters were five and six. And I think maybe I'd just gone, oh, don't be stupid, his daughters can't be that young then. No, I mean, they're old enough to play tennis on full-size tennis courts. I suppose so. I suppose I'd just got... Uh, My uh, assumption was they were maybe you know, 10 and 12. I've seen, my, you know, my nieces are sort of six and eight and they're playing tennis on full-size tennis courts, but they're both standing <laughs> right by the net, like, batting the ball. Oh, yeah. So I've got, I That's... think, 
doesn't really count. They're rubbish. Um. <laughs> yeah, I bet you told them that as well. <laughs> Come on! Yeah, good. No self from the baseline. Do it better. Do it the way I showed you. Um, but um, he flirts quite a lot with uh, Julia. Yes, it's all getting a bit me too, isn't it? It is, and it's... It, yeah. Because it kind of doesn't... I think even in the 60s, this would have come across as an inappropriate... There's a sense that he's exerting his masculinity in a way that's inappropriate on somebody that's... I she, she, well, she's got a job, so she must be 18. She's, she's not... I mean, she's in a more vulnerable position, but she doesn't come across as necessarily a vulnerable person. No. Particularly what she talks about later on. But um, I think it's the fact that she remembers him from when she was much younger and he was an authority figure. And I think even in the 60s, this might again have had a, the studio executives curled up in the corner going, this is not... Good. Yeah. I mean, I do this with my children's babysitter, and that's fine. Yeah, yeah, well. But he asks her to come along on his adventure. And she says yes. And she says, yeah, sure. And this was the point, again, where you think, okay, fine, I'll just reconfigure my idea of the film. And obviously it's going to get to the end of the film, and he's going to have, like, a gang of 20... But he's going to keep asking people. Oh, you think he's going to start a cult? Sort of. Maybe, in a way, but, but just this idea that everywhere he goes now there will be one or two people, oh yeah, we'll come with you, and it's because he talks about it being an exploration and an adventure. And yeah, I kind of, now I'm thinking, well, okay, fine, he's going to turn up at his house and there's going to be like 15 of them. And then they're going to teach the world to sing. Probably, yeah. They find that marigolds are growing as they, um, they, they're not walking between pools, they're portaging. Right. Which I think, I think that's... I, I'm not sure what that refers to, but that's just a little joke turn of phrase that yeah. Ned comes up with. Um, and it's uh, it's early in the year for marigolds to be flowering. Julie notes. Yeah, yeah, I think she did. Yeah, it's, it's, things are things are changing, and she also says that she daydreamed about him yes. when she was younger. And a lot of this scene is played with long distance out of focus shots mm. and then them talking in voiceover and it feels very Im- overtly impressionistic yeah you could almost believe that that it was a sequence kind of cobbled together from b-roll footage and then just 80 yard or something like that but i think it's too important to the story not to be there was footage that was reshot later on but we'll get to that later i think at this point because i'd kind of picked up the idea that the director didn't have a clue what he was doing was my reading of the, well just that was my reading of the film at this point because i'm sitting there as i say i'm sitting there constantly watching this going why is this happening what are you doing none of these characters make any sense i'm confused about the passage of time uh, and i think i just decided to blame the director so I, I could have seen this sequence as being, yeah, this is just somebody in the editing suite going, oh, put that bit there, put that bit there, we'll get them back in, they'll speak over the top of it, it'll make sense. Um, but yeah, again, it's, and she talks about she stole one of his shirts and she used to wear it, she used to smell it, and it's all, am I going to have to perform a citizen's arrest on this film? You know, it's all getting a bit... And um, when, she, when she was being driven home after babysitting... She would fantasise about moving to Paris to get away oh, from him, and yeah. then one day he came to see her, and she ran towards him into his arms. Yes, and all this sort of teenage uh, romance magazines. Yes, stuff. but but not. Yeah, I mean, from her perspective, that vague teen idea of romance because you don't understand 
sex. There's just this. There's that separation of this is a romantic thing to do. Yeah. It's not a. And have they had the bit yet where they're jumping over the horses? Not yet. No. no okay. You see again as well as all the porcelain. So yeah. So they're just having this conversation about her having a. And there's something even. And maybe this is just me coming at this film with too modern a viewpoint, but. She doesn't want to talk about it, and he's very insistent, and it's tell me, and you know, and again, it feels like he's exercising his power over her and forcing her to talk about things that she doesn't particularly want to talk about. The, the way she talks, she's happy to sort of write it off as, oh, wasn't, mm. wasn't I young and silly to think like that? Yeah, and he's taking it far too seriously. Yeah. Which, again, doesn't fit with this image of a happily married family man with daughters playing tennis at home. No. But then again, of course, the fa- the happily married family man with daughters playing tennis at home doesn't fit with the image of the man who seems to be far too familiar with everybody's wives and, as you say, is kissing people's feet. And Yeah. yeah. The whole image of them walking through this um, uh, countryside, and particularly the opening titles, it's very reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. Yeah. That, at the beginning of the movie... Ned just sort of pops into being yes, out of yes. this, out of this um, wilderness, and I don't want to go into too much. Detail. I think a lot of this we're going to have to put off to the end because I I'm mm. really keen that we talk about the story in order. Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes we we go away from that, but I think it's important that we yes. do it in order. But do, do you feel that the two of them together, almost as an unwilling Adam and Eve type, or maybe that's the way Ned perceives them? I think, yeah, possibly. Um, as I say, I keep coming back to... I keep using the word messianic, partly because I can't think of any other synonyms, but... Um, Jesus-y. Yeah, but there is that vague religious cult-like... You know, and the fact that that's almost how he sold her on... No, he sold her on coming with him as a kind of journey of exploration and stuff. Yeah. But then again, yeah, you know, the biblical, let's go and explore the Garden of Eden and name all the animals. and Yeah. yeah. They arrive at the next party, um, which is being held by the Bunkers. And um, Mrs. Bunker is very happy to welcome Ned and Julie. Mr. Bunker is sitting in the pool on a little inflatable thing. Oh, yes, he's asleep. Yes. Because he's, he also drank too much the night before. And um, they uh, help themselves to champagne. That's right. And is this the point where there's an African-American servant yes. in the... And this is the point when I started to feel uncomfortable with... At that point, there's no, there's no comment and there's nothing to say. Just a guy who was working there. Hands them some champagne. Ned is polite to him. And he and Julianne share a glass in what feels a bit like a marriage toast. Yeah. It, no, I, I think what, it, what, what made me feel uncomfortable, and I think it was... I, I was possibly feeling more guilty at my reaction. There's a Monty Python sketch called The Attila the Hun Show where the joke is that it's Attila the Hun, but it's shot as if it was some kind of saccharine, sweet American situation comedy. And they've got Eric Idle blacked up as the African-American manservant. And unfortunately, the accent that Eric Idle is using sounds exactly like the way that the guy that serves them champagne talks. Well, I think that speaks very highly for Eric Idle's professionalism and skill with accents. Yeah, I think that's almost certainly what it is. But it got a, it got a laugh out of me, and then I felt guilty for laughing. Well, I think because because you're making a connection there, yeah. so that's I, I'd say that's fine. But at that point, the fact that this fellow is 
flat. Yeah, actually, it's, it's, entirely, not, it's entirely by the by. Ex- but it will come up later on. Except as well that he's the first, he's Matt. the first non-white character you've seen, and he's in a, a but he's a he's a servant, but he's a paid servant, and yeah. he's been hired in to cater for a party. I don't want to bring too much baggage into. It. I'm aware that that it's far too easy to just go back and hit the past with sticks and go bad and wrong, you know, and 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 that's not. Yeah, the film's not making people. I suspect in the sixties, yeah, lots of people had African American servants and it was just that was what yeah. you did in well my understanding is that uh, that he's from a firm of caterers that's been hired oh yeah so possibly. He's, he's, he doesn't actually work for but the don't household. they know doesn't later on they there is someone who, has some, who lives in, and they live in a really big mansion oh that's right yes um anyway yes you're right they have a glass of champagne and again it's all starting to get i'm sitting there getting increasingly prickly about the relationship yeah that that Burt Lancaster thinks he's having, or the relationship that I think Burt Lancaster thinks he's having. Yeah. Because you're kind of, there's a point when you start to worry that, 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 you know, how many layers am I putting on this? Am I just reacting against my own reaction? Or is it? I find it interesting that you're putting so much work into this. I mean, it's, the film's doing comparatively little I know, but and you're doing a lot of the heavy lifting on your own <laughs> quite possibly that's but, quite impressive for but equally do I don't know at this point if this is still because I have no idea where the film's going it's still just about a guy that's apparently trying to swim home and he's just swimming home through a variety of different parties and social occasions and yeah and I think I'm sitting there desperately going I need something to read into this well, and you're about to get something, oh, because yeah. Roger uh, Roger Bunker has woken up and greets Neddy. It's oh, Ned, it's so pleased to see you. I haven't seen you for such a long time. Oh, you know, I thought it was absolutely terrible what they did to mm. you. You know, for, for that guy to come in and, and, and to take over like that and, and push you out. I mean, that was, that was pretty low of them. But, uh, but you know, you know he, uh, there's, uh, there's, there's, there's some people I can talk to, mm. and, uh, you know... I, I can't make any guarantees, but you know maybe uh, if you'll let me, then uh, maybe I can. Oh, I don't. Oh, oh, Roger. Oh, uh, my good, my good friend. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, Lucinda's at home, and my girls are playing tennis. Yeah, and it's and it's all and it's the first hint that, well, it's the first overt hint that I pick. And you go, okay, well, fine. Has he lost his job? Because obviously, again, you know, you with your, my kind of view of. That, that section of American suburbia, you're unemployed, that's the worst possible thing you could be. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of what's talked about. But again, in retrospect, I'm not sure if... It's talked about as if it's a business deal, that whatever it was that Ned did, he's been forced out of the company. But I'm now not sure if that is what they're talking about. That's what I understood them to be talking yeah. about. And that... His friends are saying, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Let me help you. Let me yeah, offer yeah. you a helping hand. But no, it's... Yeah, whatever's happened, fine. it's just skimming over the top. Yeah. No, no, nothing's wrong. Everything is exactly perfect the way I wanted. Yeah. One note I have here is swimming as zen. Yeah, or again, I suppose you could argue that there's a... That Ned wants to glide effortlessly through life like he glides through the water in the pool... And you know, and all that kind of stuff, and that, as you say, events just flow over him, and yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, in a sort of zen-like way. But his, yeah, his focus on 
the act of swimming. Yeah. Because uh, I go swimming occasionally, and it's very hard to think about anything else while you're doing it. You yeah. really have to concentrate, and it focuses your mind a great deal. So it does work as a kind of meditation, mm. as well as exercise. And as a result, it's a good way of physically doing something without having to think about anything else. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I used to go swimming, but uh, I wasn't very good at it. Well, neither am I, but I mean, it's, it's good exercise yeah, yeah. and it's, it's a change of pace. And it's good fun. I mean, I enjoy yeah, it. Yeah. But you really can't, you know, I can't, I can't just let my mind wander and think about something else. Now I've got to really concentrate yeah, on what yeah. I'm doing. And it could be just because I'm not very good. Hmm. But neither was Bert Lancaster because he was actually scared of water and had to hire a UCLA coach to teach him how to swim. I know, and that's I, I, some, somewhere along the line I came across that detail and that, talk about stripping the romance away from the, the idea of Bert Lancaster as a man that's afraid of water, it just kind of I've just looked too far behind the curtain or something like that. Well, from what I gather he was, he had no neurosis about mm. it. He was an athlete, he was a trained acrobat physically very fit and powerful man but he was afraid of water. Just could perhaps if you yeah, if you just can't swim or something. Yeah, it makes but, sense. It, but it sounds as though he was happy to acknowledge this and was you know prepared to try and fix it for yeah. for for the role. So you know, I I see no shame in that. No. They um they leave the party and they get to the next stage, which is a horse riding circle. Yeah, I don't dressage, really know how to... dressage space, yeah. and. We have the uh, the human dressage sequence yes. of them running and jumping in slow motion over the uh, the fences, and then Bert Lancaster hurts his leg. Yeah, as as he's in the middle of proving his youthfulness and physical power and virility, he lands badly and twists his ankle. It's yet another odd moment, and it kind of big, and and suddenly he's limping. Yeah, and. And he's limping for the rest of the movie. Stars in films don't limp. I'm trying to think, you know, it's a, it's a bit like you were saying about Burt Lancaster, sort of that, that getting to that point in his career when he's getting older and thinking about changing roles. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger doesn't limp. I don't think... I've seen Arnold Schwarzenegger cry in a drama. Okay. It's, it's that film that I keep going on about, Maggie. Oh, yes. The film he made like 40 years after he started moving, and it's his dramatic debut. And he's a really good, serious mm. actor. But he looks and sounds like Arnold Schwarzenegger, so his roles are limited. But it's a, was it Mark Commode talked about films like The Expendables, where it's all these ageing action stars that are still doing the same unbelievable stunts. It's just that every five minutes or so, they're kind of starting, oh, my lower back or something. It's like that Jerry action. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm almost prepared to give Sylvester Stallone a pass on that, because if you watch the more recent Rocky movies, he is very happy to play physically vulnerable. Mm. In Creed, Rocky gets cancer. Wow, okay. And he has to go through chemotherapy. And there's a point where he considers not taking treatment because his wife had cancer and, it, and right. she died from it. And he, he wants to see her again. But he's encouraged to go through with the chemotherapy and he trains mm. young Creed. And at the end of the movie, it's at the steps at the Philadelphia Museum of Modern Art and he's walking up the steps, slowly taking it a few at a time because he's still he's recovering, yeah. but he's still very... Weak and frail. Hmm. But you know, it's it's certainly odd to see Burt Lancaster start, um, he's, start limping. Yeah. Because he's 
this kind of mahogany hunk of manhood. Yeah. He's still in his swimming trunks. I mean, I know that we've said we've established it at the start, but there is that you you just kind of after a while you just stop noticing. It, he never, yeah. Well, it's I mean he's he's so sort of bronzed yeah. and 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 well built. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's the epitome of the the post-war the American man, masculine yeah. man, and his straight well, not stranger. But his more deliberately antagonistic choices, the ones mm. where he's really pushing back against his image, like this, like The Sweet Smell of Success, which is hailed as a great classic. Okay. And this is the one that's been forgotten. <laughs> um, he's, he's clearly sort of thinking a yeah. great deal about how he's perceived as well. Yeah. You don't get this from Tom Cruise. No, that's it. Tom Cruise doesn't limp in Mission Impossible films. Or he if he does, he does a, a little plot bit. Reason. He does a little bit in the new one where he actually smashed his ankle. Oh, right. Um, they did finish that shot, I think, or they sort of did it later, where he does limp a little bit. Oh, okay. And then the gets, next time you see him, he's fine. He gets better. Yeah. yeah. I can't imagine Tom Cruise being in a version of this. No. No, I can't see that there's. Not Tom, I don't. I think he's he's too wrapped up in his own self image to kind of undercut it in the way that Burt Reynolds. But there you go. There I knew go. I did it. I knew it. Would, I knew it was lurking on the horizon. Um, but like Burt Lancaster does, yeah. I can. Imagine, uh, there are other actors I think who would be able to. Chris Evans. Yeah, not, yeah. Not old enough yet, but in ten years' time, um, he go for it because mm. it seems like. I mean, as well as apparently being Captain America in real life as well. Um, he keeps doing very weird choices of movies um, and films where he sort of looks weird and looks ugly and wears glasses and puts on a beard and things like that. Hmm. So he'd be sort of quite happy, I think, to yeah. parlay this. Um, Julianne tells Ned about some of her experiences at work. Mm. That she has to get to work very early because she's sort of the office girl and she's making coffee. And one morning, she looked up out of the window across the road where there's an apartment building. And in the window, there was a man staring back at her, and he was stark naked. And on another occasion, she was taking the elevator between floors with an armful of files. And a man got in, and when the lift doors closed, he just grabbed her and kissed her on the mouth, and then got off at his floor and, and disappeared. And it's interesting that Ned is actually appalled by this. Yeah, yeah. That his attitude to women is... He never is... He never treats women he doesn't know like that. Yeah. He's, it's always people he knows, people he's friends with, or the wives of people he's friends with, that he's very openly flirtatious with. Yeah. But he thinks that this kind of assault, they're both yeah. assaults, really, <clears throat> uh, are absolutely appalling. But she shrugs it off. Yeah, well, she shrugs it off as just being part of living in the city, doesn't it? Or working yeah. in the city. And then he makes a very peculiar suggestion that he could... What is it? Come to work with her every day? Yeah, and so then they, they could the, meet up and have lunch? That he could be her protector. And then it's this thing... And I'm just sitting there going, what kind of fantasy world is this character trying to weave around him? Because suddenly this doesn't fit with any of the stuff. He's seeing himself as someone who... I mean, he's trying to position himself as the protective lover. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's very quickly becomes, all right, overtly, oh, right, he's trying to 
seduce her somehow in, yeah. in a way that makes sense to him. Yes, but it's this thing. But and then there's this whole element of sitting there going. I'm sitting there watching the film, going, "But how does this fit in?" You you keep going on about your wife and kids, and now you're talking about talking to somebody else about coming to the city with them every day. None of this makes any sense. Um, and just kind of not understanding where the character is coming. Or is this just the kind of line that he lays on all the women? That oh, look at me, I'll be your protector. And is this just how he? Is this why he's so? friendly with all the, the women in the local area. Well, because she's a younger woman, because she's... He, he assumes she's single. She says that she mm. has a boyfriend, and all that he's terribly jealous, <laughs> which right. is... Uh, yes, that's probably a lie. She's probably single. But she just wants to push yeah. him away. And also, because where they're, they're sitting, also reclining, he has his hand on her stomach. Yeah, yeah. Which she keeps... She pushes away gently at first but becoming more and more insistent. Mm. And as he talks about them sort of, uh, that, that kind of relationship, she gets very genuinely upset yeah. and um, she runs away. She just runs off and suddenly suddenly his character looks vulnerable and sad, even more so in a way than he did when he met up with Mrs. Hammer. He just suddenly starts to look a bit old, and 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 he's and again it's this it's this kind of combination of he's standing there in his swimming trunks, he's limping, and suddenly yeah, it's it's really weird. This kind of this youthful vigor that he had is 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 slowly beginning to peel away. Yeah, it's noting it's odd to note that um, she says that she met her boyfriend through computer dating. Oh yes, yeah. This is maybe the first. Mention of computer dating in any media ever. Yeah, it's not in the short story, isn't it? Oh, okay. If it was, that would be amazing. It's nineteen sixty-two. Oh yes, yeah. Um, I mean, the computer can only remember three people. <laughs> one of them was its creator. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's in love with the computer. Well, obviously, who who wouldn't be? It's P- P- Professor what's his name of Votan, isn't it? Well, Brett. Professor Brett and Wotan, they, there's something very dodgy about their relationship. Why did he give Wotan a face? <laughs> why, why, why are Wotan's eyes different sizes? It's, you know. This is his Doctor Who story. This <laughs> it's called The War Machines. It's very good. Yeah. It's like Terminator 3, but set in swinging 60s London. Isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I was just going to let that statement ride, because that summed it up very well. Ned arrives at the next house, which belongs to the Hallorans. And he arrives at the front driveway just as their car is oh, coming yes, in. And he yeah. says, oh, Steve, Steve. But the driver is not Steve. No, it's, it's somebody else. And again, and that's this point again when it's never, nobody ever says anything, but you gradually become aware that there's a disconnect and you can't start to get the impression that, he, that, that Ned hasn't just been away for a couple of months, which is what you might think from the first part, oh, we haven't seen you for ages, and you just think he hasn't been around. It starts to feel like it's been possibly years? I I think overall the impression is supposed to be that it's about two years. Yeah. That he's... That something has happened. Mm. And we're never told exactly what. No. But something has happened two years ago that drastically changed his life. But it's the slow kind of creeping way that this all, that that you you gradually put all these bits and pieces together and it just, it kind of nags in a way. And it's it's actually more unsettling because you are sitting there watching it going, well, what what has happened and how long has it been since this has happened? And 
And yet, why does he keep talking about his perfectly normal family life as if he's talking about life as if this disconnect hasn't happened, and yet everybody else is, and 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 yet there's no way to make the two things mesh. Well, the the driver is not Steve, no. but he gives him a lift up to the house, and Ned talks about Steve. Oh yes, oh he was a, a great chairman. I had that that deep bass voice, and the driver who's uh, the driver who's black says ice. And the natural sense of rhythm. Mm. Thought, ah, like as you were saying earlier about the, um, the bartender at the bunkers party. Yeah. There's that sense of wealthy white male privilege there. Yeah, yeah. Well, because because Ned finds that I don't think Ned even picks up on that. He just kind of laughs and agrees yeah. as if it's just. Yes, he was a good dancer and a terribly good basketball player as well. Yeah, exactly. And 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 it just passes him by because it doesn't. I think maybe he he it, 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 there's an implication that he lives in a world where the the people that serve you don't have opinions that they're just there. Yeah. And yeah, you know, and he he probably thinks that he's being an incredible he's being a great human being by remembering Steve's name. Yeah. But I don't think we ever hear the name of the new driver. No, I don't think so. Um. Well, they arrive in the Hallorans' back garden, and inevitably the Hallorans are naturists. Yeah, of course. And they see that Ned has arrived and that he's coming across the lawn, and Mr. Halloran suggests that he's probably coming to ask them for money again. Mm. And Mrs. Halloran says, well, he'll get the same answer that he did last time. And in, um, in deference to their social behaviour, Ned does take off his swimming yes. trucks. I mean, it's all shot very decorously. It's a... Oh, yes. But interestingly, it doesn't quite... There's a teapot on the table, and there, I'm sort of sitting there thinking, is this going to go into a kind of Aust- a kind of pre-Austin Powers thing where he's just constantly being obscure? No, it's just, no it, it, it gets, he just holds his trunks up, is the yeah. boring answer. But. And also, the Hallorans are also reading newspapers, so they mm. can just hold those up. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the Hallorans are sort of interesting characters because they're clearly extremely wealthy, mm. and they seem quite conservative, and they certainly think of Ned as... Uh, not a, a person worth lending money to. No. But they're involved in um, a real estate project that's planning to cut up a, an estate into smaller areas than before in order to uh, fit in more social housing. And that supposedly the newspaper has referred to them as communists. Yes, yeah. And they've had a whole conversation with their daughter on the phone, haven't they? Because they want the daughter to come across and bring the daughter's kids to say it, but she won't do it if the if they're if naked they're, they're because naked. the daughter thinks they're weird and they're kind of going oh but the, the, your kids will grow up repressed <laughs> they're my kids yeah and they have a slightly barbed conversation that, that knocks backwards and forwards and then there's a comment about some dinner isn't there where they a oh, charity yes, there's, there's dinner, a charity dinner put me up. down for a table oh you know tables cost a thousand pounds it's oh put me down for a table and again What's going yes, on there's, here? Yeah, and also the they notice he notices that there's a tree that's lost its leaves. Oh, that's yeah. And uh, Mr. Ham says, "Oh, it's, it's an ash tree. Oh, you know what they're like. Last to let get their leaves, first to lose them." So, is time passing faster than you're led to believe? I haven't picked up on that at all. Because we started in the glory of midsummer with a beautiful, clear blue sky. Mm. Wonderful warm weather where a man can run around in his swimming trunks perfectly happily. And yet, 
trees are losing their leaves, flowers are coming out that yeah. normally flower later in the year. And soon it will start to become much colder. Yeah. I hadn't pick, I kind of hadn't picked up on this. Until by the end of the day, it's a winter thunderstorm. I certainly hadn't picked I'd I'd sort of read clocked the I'd clocked the discussion about the tree, but I hadn't read any significance into it. And I think again at this point I'd still just assumed that there had been a business deal that had gone sour and Ned had been forced out of his company and it'd come to the what are their names again? The nudists. Yes, the, the Hallorans. The Hallorans, that's it. They'd come he'd come to the Hallorans to borrow money and they'd turned him down. But now he's back on his feet. And he's back in, back in the area, possibly, or maybe he never moved away. And it's just this thing, as I say, I'm, I'm sitting there doing all the heavy lifting for the film, which is determinedly not giving you anything to go on. And I'm, I'm just trying to put together what I think might be a consistent backstory for the character. I find it interesting that you're they're doing it as you're watching the film, rather than trying to consume the whole thing. And then just sort of... Let's take in all the evidence. Yeah. This is maybe, I think, the way I watch films. Take in all the evidence at once and piece it together later. Yeah. No, I think... Rather I'm, than doing, doing the jigsaw as you're looking yeah. at the box. And trying to work out where's, where's this plot going, what's going to happen, why are these people doing this, you know. Yeah. No, it's obviously just, as you say, it's, 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 it's the different ways that, that hmm. we watch films. But I just assume, well, this will make sense in, it, in whatever way they want it to work. It'll fit together by the end. I'm not... I, I, I've got a couple of friends who... I, if you watch films with them, there will be a key moment where, I don't know, somebody will, you know, hide a sock up a chimney or something. And they'll sit there and go, why is he hiding a sock up a chimney? And that will annoy me because they're going, well, I'm sure the script will tell us later. Yes, I get very annoyed when people ask questions to which the answer is, watch the film yeah, and you'll exactly. find out. Yeah, exactly. And I don't do stuff like that, but I, I will sit there and go, well, why is he hiding a sock up a chimney? But I will just assume that the film will tell me later on. Um, but I like to try to... I'm one, I am one of those annoying people that likes to try to be ahead of the film. I took far too much pride in going to see uh, the M. Night Shyamalan film. The Sixth I see, Sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Sixth Sense, where... I'd gone into it on the back of all these reviews that say, oh, the twist is amazing, and so it becomes a challenge. You, know, you kind of sit there with your arms folded, staring at the screen, going, right, I am going to figure you out before, the, before anyone tells me what's going on. Um, and it becomes like a battle of wills. <laughs> and that's what I was trying to do with this. I was trying to find the combination, basically. I was trying to find the, the right sequence that the film would open up, and I'd go, ah, oh, now all this makes sense, and I figured it out before the director told me I am best. Well, Ned arrives at the next house, and it's the Gilmartins. But Mr and Mrs Gilmartin are no longer together. Mr Gilmartin has run away with Mrs Gilmartin's oh, is this manicurist. Oh, this is the kid, isn't it? Yes. And it's the little son sitting by the front gate, selling cups of lemonade at 10 cents a go mm. and the only person in the house to look after him is the maid Yeah, and Ned asks for a cup but can't pay because obviously he hasn't yes, money no. in him and uh, as well do I look honest and he's starting to get cold as well yeah um, it turns out the Gilmartins have actually drained their pool and um, Ned talks to the son the, the little boy and he seems to open up for the first time yeah. he seems to start to sort of acknowledge the reality around him for the first time in the film. 
the boy's complaining that uh, he's never picked for sport. He's not a sporty boy. And Ned says, oh, that's, that's all right. I mean, it seems like the end of the world because you're not part of things. But then you realise that you're free to be yourself. And mm. also that because they, the pool is empty, rather than abandoning his whole project, he'll just pretend he's to just doing He'll just get in and walk the length of the pool and do the arm actions. He says, well, doesn't, isn't that cheating? He says, well, no, because if you believe in something hard enough, then it becomes real for you. Mm. Which is obviously a line that's loaded that's, with yeah, significance. That's, yes, yes, this is what you should be paying attention to. I hope you were noting that down in your big book of explanations. Oh, absolutely. Yes, Good. Yeah. Good. Got a nice tick next to that one. <laughs> and then equally, as he walks away, the kid is bouncing up and down on the diving board. And yeah. Ned rushes back and grabs the kid and hugs him, I think. Yes. And says, oh, I thought you were going to dive in. And that's when you kind of... That's an interesting moment because you think, is this just Ned thinking oh my God, I've convinced this kid that if you believe something hard enough, it becomes true. And now the kid believes the swimming pool is full of water, therefore he's going to dive in. But equally, his reaction seems slightly out of proportion to what's going on. And I think this was the first point when I began to wonder what was going on with his daughters, who were so definitely at home playing tennis. Um... And again, it's that thing, oh, God, I guess in a going, okay, now I need to shuffle the pieces around the board again. <laughs> he arrives at the next party, and it's the uh, Bizwangers. Yes, the Bizwangers are not nice people. Well, they're having a great big 60s party. Yeah. Uh, they've got the world's biggest conservatory, which Mr. Bizwanger is boasting about. Yeah. It's built of brushed aluminium and tempered steel. And, and it weighs so and much. It's, and it's yeah. so much, and it has so much glass on it, and he's bragging about it to everybody. And there's a surly bartender that Ned gets a drink from. And Joan Rivers is also there. <laughs> yes, yeah. And this was the point where... And, and this completely disrupted me because I, it's one of those classic moments when you go, who is that? And it, not the film's fault. Me, it's me being a bad viewer, but it completely took me out of the film for about 30 seconds. And I, I had to pause it and look at, look, up, look at the cast list at that point because it is that thing of going, I know you... But you're out of context, and so I can't place you. Well, this was this was Joan Rivers' first film. Yeah, yeah. And I think she'd established herself as a a, a comedian, mm. but she wasn't Joan Rivers that we know now, of course. So it's it's a bit of a jump. She really looks like Sarah Silverman. Right? Yeah, I think that's maybe possibly what threw me, and not knowing as well that this was filmed '66, so yeah. earlier than I th- than I thought as well. But yeah, no, just funny, just a little bit of a speed bump in, in, the, in terms of viewing the film. And she's very flirtatious, and she's clearly rather taken with this mm. handsome, well-built man in his swimming trunks. And he asks her to come with him on his swimming adventure that he describes as being very noble and splendid. But another man, another man presumably her husband, yeah. says, mm, just drags her away gently, as if you don't want to be talking to this person. And I just... In the moment, I just read that as jealous husband. Yeah. But again, I think this is, one of the, this is another one of these moments that becomes more significant in retrospect. He swims as he jumps in, makes a big splash, 
I've noticed all the way through the film that Burt Lancaster's diving isn't very good because he always lands flat in the water. I did, yeah, I was kind of, I think I, I picked up on that as well and, and just, I'm not going to tell Burt Lancaster that he can't, that he's barely flopping into the pool. Well, but he, he barely knows how to swim. Yeah. I mean, I, I prepared to give him a break, but I thought, yeah, because Ned's supposed to be a really good swimmer and he can't dive. Yeah. <laughs> but he makes a big splash and splashes the guests, swims his length, comes out at the other end. Oh, it's the whole, and yeah. There's a hot dog cart at the party for the guests to have hot dogs made up. And for the first time he looks upset. Yeah. He really looks upset. Because he thinks that's his hot dog cart. Yeah. But Mr. Biswan says, no, it's not we bought it at a white elephant sale. Um, you know, it's us. He says, no, look, it's mine. You know, see that bit there? That's the bit where I repaired it, where mm. Aggie put her foot through it when we were playing. And I, I painted it myself, I put this umbrella on it myself, this is mine. And he's determined to take it back and gets into a shoving match with Mr. Mm. Bismarck, shoves him to the ground, and then he starts threatening to have put the, this lawyer onto him. Yeah, and Mr. Biswanger just says, oh yeah, you, you sent me your lawyer or whatever. And yeah, it's... And again... Okay. By this point, it's become... It, it's absolutely obvious that there are... There were dark undercurrents. Uh, dangerous undercurrents is the phrase yes, I'm looking yes. for, I think. Yes, I'm very clever. I referenced the curse of Fenwick all by myself. Um, but uh, that's another Doctor Who story for anybody that doesn't understand this constant stream of references. Yes, you were saying. Anyway, yes, yeah. Um, but there's still that sense of time being out of joint. How long is... He's not telling the truth to himself. How long has he been away... Why do his do- when he talks to one group of people, you get the impression that his daughters are the babysitter's age. When he talks to other people, as in the context of this is the cart, there's the bit where I they put their foot through. It's like how old are your daughter? You know, he almost as if he's talking about two different sets of kids or something. And it's and he's just he's limping more and more. He actually kind of weirdly and and. Again, at the time, I wrote this off as just, well, he's walking five miles on a gammy leg or something. But, yeah, time is... Time is working differently it's for not, him. It's, it's as though... I mean, this is kind of giving away things. That the closer he gets to he's, home... He's ageing faster the yeah, closer he, he gets, gets to home. older and more fragile. But the closer he gets to home, the less people seem to like... Him. The closer he's getting to reality. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, the people, the people at the start of the film, he's five miles away from home, and they, oh, it's good old Ned, blah blah, and good old Ned's been away, but nobody really knows the details. No one's pleased to. Yeah, and there is this strange sense he's he's getting closer to something, and the more, the 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 closer he gets to. Um, to the the thing that the, the, his fantasies are just kind of being flayed away from him by the pressure of reality, and it's what's kind of hard to explain is just how unsettling all this is, because it's just kind of unfolding in front of you in slow motion, but it's never talked. Nobody ever says anything, or and Bert Lancaster obviously Ned's character never acknowledges it, and that's kind of the weirdest thing about the film, isn't it? Is just the kind of creeping uncertainty. <laughs> The next house he arrives in is the last house, apart from his own, and it's Shirley Abbott's. Mm. And he goes through the same routine again to kiss her foot, and she kicks him away. Yeah. 
and she's clearly angry with him, yeah. not pleased to see him, and we gradually discover why as they talk that he'd had an affair with her. And he ended it very coldly and abruptly. Yes, and but yeah, in a very calculated way. Um, they met in a fancy restaurant <clears throat> because he knew that she wouldn't make a scene there. Which again just leaves you thinking, well, how many times has it, if he's got a routine, how many times has he done this before? Um, and she's an actress, yes, isn't she? And and then he's talking as if he's been her, like the producer of her shows or something, or or. Isn't that's, he? That's not the impression that oh, I got. Okay, maybe that's just me flailing around looking. Maybe, for... maybe. Uh, I mean, it, we go back to the whole advertising thing that he's he's projecting an image of himself. Mm. It could well be that he worked in advertising it uh, with her in some way that she was maybe acted in a commercial that he yeah. was uh, producing. Um, there's certainly parallels here, not just I think with Mad Men, but also with How to Get Ahead in Advertising mm. about. Advertising, getting underneath one's skin, and one feels one has to advertise oneself. One has to project an image of oneself. Yeah. And it is the image of Ned that we sl- see slowly being eroded over the course of the film. He starts out as youthful, virile, yes. popular, and as he travels, as time passes faster and faster, and he seems to age and become closer to reality people are more open in their lack of respect and their dislike for mm. him. His, he physically ages, he physically becomes weaker and frailer. And his sense of self is increasingly under threat and under attack when it becomes clear that he is not the man that he believes himself no. to be. And that this self-image he has constructed is the house of cards. Yeah. And then this is the point when he, is this the point when he starts to openly sort of say he's feeling cold and stuff. Yes. And again, he's clearly shivering. And I'm looking at this, going, "Are you sick?" You know, and just yeah, like, you're, do, trying, you're trying to piece the bits. And, together. I'm still trying to put the bits together, and 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 I'm kind of, it's kind of a futile, it's kind of futile in a way. But it's, I think the, the problem is that you're trying to piece it together in a way that makes realistic real world sense well I, th- I think what I hadn't picked up on this point was quite how much the character is lying to himself it's the unreliable narrator yeah I think that's kind of what I perhaps hadn't picked up and that's why I, none of these explanations I, I, none of these explanations made any sense because as you say we, we haven't actually got to the point you know Ned's still in denial about something um, but I was kind of looking for this universal theory of everything that would just explain. Mm. Yeah, so I think at this point, I'm thinking, has he got some horrible disease? And then going back to the Mrs. Hammer, and thinking, was it? that why he didn't go to see her son? Because he also has some... Not so much that he gave Mrs. Hammer's son something terrible, but more just that he didn't go to see her son because he is also suffering from something and he couldn't bear to see the the parallels or he couldn't bear to see what he knew was going to happen to him. Couldn't quite, as I say, still couldn't quite work it out. Um, but again, he won't let this relationship go and it starts to get a bit like it did when he was talking to the babysitter. She's asking him to leave. She's saying, please don't do this. And it's all getting a bit uncomfortable again. Yes. When I was a kid, I believed in things. 
he says. The past seems so recent and time passes so quickly. Mm. So he's becoming more clearly introspective now. Yeah, and less zen. It's when you said earlier that he's quite zen-like when he talks about swimming and he's becoming less zen about everything. In yes. Life. He tells Shirley that he could take her to Ireland to see, to stay in a real castle. And it's another fantasy yeah, adventure. It's, it's like yeah. sw- it's swimming home all over again. Yeah, or it's like the becoming the Guardian in New York. It's just, yeah, it's, it's just fantasy land. Um, he drags Shirley into the pool to swim with her. But she finally cracks and, mm. and says that she was pleased that when he broke it off because he was boring her to death says you met your match you suburban stud I was acting <laughs> yeah and that hurts him more than anything the idea that um, that she was kind of just faking her rela- faking her relationship that really because upsets her he wanted her to be dependent on him but she yeah. was using him just as much as he was using her yeah and that he called her after they'd broken it off, but she was actually in bed with one of the hotel staff. That's right, and yes. They, she had the receiver on the pillow between them, and they had to stuff the bed sheets into their mouths so that he couldn't hear them laughing. Mm. And the look on his face, despite everything he's said and everything he's been through, and how clearly unlikable Ned is, you can't help but feel sorry for this poor broken man. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're starting to understand... He's lost everything that gave him a sense of himself. And this is the point when it starts to become a bit more... It becomes less about, what the hell is he talking about? What's happened? It's become, what's he going to find when he gets home? And that's... It's, 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 I think it was about this point that the kind of... For me, the reason I was watching this film changed. It stopped being that I wanted to unlock the mystery of Ned, and it was the, you know, yeah, what is he going to find when he gets home? Um, is, his, is his wife there with the kids? Are they divorced? Have the, you know, what's it going to... And, and that was what I couldn't... That, that, was, that was kind of what was interesting at that point, was, was just this feeling that the film had flipped, and suddenly it wasn't the swimming... It, it wasn't the... It was the destination that had become more important rather than the journey. Which is the reverse, really, to what one would expect. It would be the journey, but other, but the journey is merely a vessel mm. for the friends he loses along the way. Yes, yeah. He walks into the deep end of the water and swims a gentle breaststroke. Oh, and then he can't climb out. And he can can't he? climb out for the first time. He has to swim over to the steps to walk up. Mm. I did think, perhaps, that you might think that the film might end with Ned drowning in the last pool. No, I don't think I've thought of that. Oh. that funny enough, that's it's, the it, one thing that had never occurred to me. It's, if, if one thinks about the story as a, mm. a, in a more linear, traditional fashion, that's the logical way the story would end. Yeah, he can't Ned get dying, out. dying, and yeah. he drowns in the last pool. But it's not that simple. No. Um, and he has to cross a busy road. Oh, that's right. Rather yeah. like at the end of Lonely Other Brave, it's uh, that's, a, a vulnerable man trying to cross a busy road. Funny enough, that's exactly what I thought of. Was was that he's standing there and he's looking, but he's Whiskey the horse, and he's confused and he's frightened by the traffic, almost again as if he's not expecting that road to be there. 
I, he mentions earlier that the road is there. It's the volume of traffic that mm. is so great. And it's a very busy road. And there are people throwing rubbish at him yeah. as well. Um, it reminds me of the, there's a scene in um, Being John Malkovich where Malkovich oh, is walking yes, yeah. on the side of the road and someone shouts, hey, Malkovich, heads up and throws a beer can at <laughs> That's him. Right, yeah. That was just a guy driving past. Really? That wasn't in the script. Oh, really? Oh, God. I th- and there was me thinking that was a really funny part of that film. Oh, it's hilarious. But that guy was just throwing a beer can at John Malkovich. That's oh, pretty bad. I'm not, That's I a pretty terrible yeah, thing to do. I don't approve of that. But it is very funny. Oh, yes, yeah. And he gets to the last pool, which is the local public pool. Funnily enough, that actually happens a lot earlier in the story. He gets that public pool is about halfway through his journey. Mm. But it makes much more sense narratively for it to be right at the end. Yeah. Where he's no longer able to be with people he knows that that comforting no. blanket of of friends and well wishes almost now he's having to engage with the general public but ironically as well as it turns out he kind of the, the final conversation he has with people are they're not his friends they're people that the local shopkeepers and these but they seem to be the people that know him best of all and that's i suppose that's the other that's the other vague sense of this film is of of him you know, the, the closer he gets to whatever is waiting at home, he know he he encounters people that know him better and better and better, and who like who appear to like him less and less and less. And then, yes, in the end, the people that he meets are not friends; they're biz- they're, they're bi- vendors. They're vendors. They're business associates, and they don't like him at all. No, because he's been welching on his bills. Yeah, he has difficulty getting into the pool because he has no money, yeah. and. Um, someone he knows is coming in and he begs them for 50 cents to get in and then he has to shower and disinfect his feet and he's mm. forced to go through and you suddenly this. you suddenly see what a state he's in because you as he goes to wash his feet you can see his feet are bleeding because he's been running around in forests running across roads yeah. Yeah, he's he's filthy, and he's forced to conform to these rules yes. which are perfectly reasonable rules I mean, you see them in every swimming pool but for him being told, no, you have to do this. He's the one who's normally in charge. He's yeah. the one who sets the tone. And being ordered around and having no choice but to uh, concede, mm. it's, it's clearly a deep humiliation. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he tries to swim his length, but the pool is absolutely <laughs> rammed. Yeah, it's like the worst public swim. It's full of shrieking kids and people, people having, leaping all over. Yeah. And they're all just, yeah. And then, you know, they're, they're having an afternoon at the pool, and that's yeah. perfectly reasonable. And it does annoy me when I try and yeah. swim lengths at the pool and they're having the fun time. And I think, oh. But, you know, you swim at the side. When I went through my brief phase of going swimming in the morning, one of the things that really used to annoy me was there was one particular guy who would come into the pool and would then insist on doing the butterfly, Ugh. which is the most antisocial s- stroke you could possibly... You know, the pool is divided up into lanes, and, yeah, you're trying to trying to do a quiet length of the pool while there's somebody galumphing up and down and basically occupying it. Yeah, he was not my favourite person. I mean, I say, I'm not a strong swimmer. I just do the breaststroke. Mm. I don't even put my head under because I'm a bit hydrophobic as well. You're in good company, Bert Lancaster. Yeah, yeah. He pulls himself out at the the end, and the vendors talk to him, the, the guy who runs the diner where he eats, 
mm. people who run the grocery shop who complain about him. Oh, you have French jam and, yes. and French mustard. American food's not good enough for you. Dijon mustard again, yeah. isn't it? Well, Which, Dijon of course, mustard. refers back to um, how to get ahead in advertising. Oh, yeah, of course. And so, oh, yeah, hearts of palm, hearts of artichoke. And it's kind of a little in the background, so yeah, more like hearts of Jack Benny. Because Jack Benny, the comedian, his stage persona mm. was that he was very tight-fisted. Yes. So, and it's, and it's said that it's two years. Oh, do they specifically say two years? They specifically say two years. And also, they talk about his family life. That, you know, they've, they've been bringing their children up right. They don't let their children go, you know, go around drunk, crashing cars. Well, this is where they, there's a very telling comment about, as you say, a drink-driving incident, isn't there? There's something about his money, or the money was good enough to hush it up. Yeah. That's, so Ned paid p- police or a judge to let his children off drunk-driving. And that brings me back to why Eric Hammer was in the hospital. Uh, yes, and I think this is what the connection I hadn't made. It took me yeah. some time to work it out as and well. I, I think this is... And I'm still not entirely sure, and, and I, I don't think... Let's still not blow... Let's, let's let's hold back on some of this discussion until we reach the end of the film. Well, we're, we're running out of recording we're, time. We're getting there close. <laughs> but yeah, I think you're right. I think that... In retrospect, I think that whatever ha- part of whatever happened was an accident that put Eric Hammer in the hospital. He insists that his daughters love and respect him, that they worship him. Yeah. But, but it's just becoming a say, kind of hysterical denial at this yes. point, isn't it? So, no, they, they think you're a joke. They laugh at you behind your back. You're always hanging around with the teenagers like you're one of the gang, but they think you're ridiculous. And he shoves them aside and climbs the, the, the rock slope at the back of the pool area. And just kind of collapses. And, and, and collapses, but he makes it back home to a pair of rusty gates which he has to force open as thunder peals in the background. He's cold, he's limping, he's filthy. He's this pathetic, tragic figure. He trudges past the tennis courts and they're disused, yeah. falling to pieces. He gets to the porch, it's dirty, the door is locked. And to one side we see that a window to one of the front rooms is broken. And our view moves through to the inside of his house. And it's empty and abandoned. There's a couple of tea chests and a broken chair mm. in the middle of the room. No sign of life. As Ned hammers on the door, openly crying, trying to get in but there's no answer. And that's the end of the story. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, obviously, put your own... What does the short story... Does the short story just end like The short that? story ends the same way. So, and it never gives any indication about no. what's... As I say, it's, it's actually a very faithful adaptation mm. and uh, a very well-written expansion, um, pushing a, a 12-page story to a 90-minute film. And not adding anything that feels out of place. And in fact, improving it, and structurally, I think it improves on it. Hmm. I mean, I could lean towards maybe not that the daughters were drunk driving, but it's possible I missed a line of dialogue, but that there had been some kind of horrible drunk driving accident which killed his family. 
and the house is in the wife's name, which is why it's now abandoned. I think, that but the, that might be overly melodramatic. I, I, I think it might be. I think the inference is that Ned's family life has disintegrated mm. after losing his job. His wife moved away. The daughters went with him, presumably. But particularly, the house is in Lucinda's name. Yes. Ned does not come from money. No. His wife comes from money. So he's been projecting this alpha male characterization of himself as a way of fitting in. And now that the props supporting it have been kicked away, he has nothing left. Mm. He doesn't even have the clothes on his back. No, that's right. Normally, I, at the end of my notes, I put a little summing up of my thoughts about the film. And here I've just got written this. Confident self-image concealing fear and anxiety of failure. Youth giving way to middle age and refusal to acknowledge passing of time. I haven't said yet why we chose this film. Oh, okay. And the reason is that years ago, my dad recommended me this film. And when I finally got round to watching it, it wasn't what I expected at all. He's not a man given to introspection, as far as I'm aware, certainly not talking about it. So to watch a film that he's recommended to me that's about a man with confident self-image and his fear of that being stripped away and mm. losing everything, it says a lot, I think, about my dad's feelings on the matter. And the sad thing is that he is currently living in a rest home suffering from advanced Alzheimer's disease. So I can't ask him about it. So I was hoping through this film and through our conversation to get a better idea of what it was he saw in it. Yeah. And I think we have. When we talk about the swimmer, do we talk about ourselves? Well, in retrospect, ironically, I have done nothing but talk about how I watched this film and tried to make sense of it. So apparently, yes, we do. I think it's what my dad would have been doing. When he was recommending the film to me, it was that he'd seen something in it that he found particularly insightful or had struck a particular nerve, particularly with regard to other things that he's talked to me about in the past, about projecting an image of confidence. So, yeah, I'm glad I could share that film with him. Hmm. I'm glad I could share it with you, because you're a nice chap. So did you manage to solve the puzzle? No. Nope. <laughs> as I say, I, I think I, was, I, I kind of finished the film vaguely thinking that, having now said my theory about the fact that there was a drink-driving accident, that maybe his wife you know, and the daughters were killed or something, and this kind of sent Ned off into a spiral of despair I think that just seems too melodramatic but as you say there are it's just interesting the way through the on the first viewing there is stuff that you don't pick up on at the start and I certainly hadn't picked up on the fact that time this may not be the first time he's done this or we may not be watching one complete journey what we may be watching is four or five different journeys sewn together well as I mentioned it reminds me of the prisoner in that towards the end of The Prisoner, you have to stop perceiving it as mm. a literal representation of reality and think of it in terms of what are these elements representing. Yeah. And I think that the advancing of time is 
showing the advancing of age, mm. of, of Ned's anxiety and his neurosis about getting old, because he's, he prides himself on his youth and his vigour and spending time with younger people. But as time passes and he's shown to be weak and vulnerable, the seasons pass as well. So although it is one journey, it's not necessarily a journey through reality. Mm. Would you recommend this film? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to. As I say, I think when it started, and, and I was convinced that the director was just cobbling... Frank Perry to... was the director. We've not mentioned his name so far. And the script was by his wife, Eleanor. The exception being the scenes with Shirley Abbott, which were reshot because the original actress apparently wasn't quite measuring up. And no less than Sidney Pollock took over to reshoot those scenes. Okay. It's, um, yes, it's a, it's a pretty strange film, but it's, it's haunting. Yes, yeah, it is. The, um, the article that I read about it sounded, well, it, it says, is, is the film almost a ghost story? Is I... it about Ned haunting these backyards and haunting his old life? So it does seem appropriate in retrospect that the very first thing we hear is a scare called straight out of a horror film. Thanks to Chris for making the time for this podcast. Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes with almost 60 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, God, look at that water. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. <laughs>